Please turn in your Bibles to where we were already, John chapter 1. Jonathan has already read our text. Uh, it was a very long text that we will try to cover this morning. I thought it might aid in the attention uh, span to break such a long reading from the sermon. So in the interest of time, we will just jump into the message. Uh, given this large passage of Scripture, the message should make a good bit more sense if you do have it open in front of you and can see where we're going. Before we uh, look to it, let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing on it together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Again, we thank you that you've spoken to us. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would come and speak to us now so that we would see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ high and lifted up and that hearing him, his sheep, would know him and follow him in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. In Jesus' name, amen. The first week, this long passage before us could easily be divided into at least three or four uh, texts. I once preached just on John one twenty nine. It's one of the great verses in Scripture, but it's also helpful to look at the whole uh, forest. And if you took a broad look at this long passage, what might strike you is that John has given us the sequence of one week. Look at verse 29, 129, the next day. So that means that verses 19 to 28 was the previous day, day one, and so verses 29 to 34, uh, that is the second day. And then look at verse 35, the next day, it's day three. Now look at verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. The two disciples stayed with Jesus on the third day because it was, it says there in verse 39, the tenth hour. Now by our reckoning, that would be about 4 p.m. The Jews counted hours in twelves like we do, but they went from sundown to sundown. So their day started at what we would call 6 p.m. So verse 39 here, is saying that the two disciples spent the rest of the day with Jesus because that day was nearly over. There's only two hours left till the next day started. The point of this is that in verse 40 here, when one of the disciples, Andrew, goes and gets Simon Peter, it is the next day, day four. And so, verse 43, you see it? It says the next day. That puts us on day five. And then look at chapter two and verse one. On the third day. You remember the Jews counted time inclusively. That's why Jesus was crucified on Friday, rose on Sunday, and we say he rose on the third day. That's how the Jews counted. We counted three days from Sunday, we, uh, three days from Friday. We wouldn't come up with Sunday, but the Jews did. Friday's day one, Saturday day two, Sunday day three. 
So if we apply that way of counting to John chapter 2 and verse 1, that's the third day. You see, the third day from when? Day 5. All right, let's count the way the Jews did. 3 from 5. Day 5, day 6, day 7. Seven days. We have here in this passage one week in the life of Jesus. Now, throughout the gospel, John gives us time indicators to keep us oriented. But this is the only place where John lays out a seven-day week in the life of Jesus like this. Why? You know, at the very end of the book, John tells us that there was a lot that he left out. He had said he had to be very selective in what he wrote because if everything Jesus did were written down, the whole world could not contain the volumes. So why did John think this particular week was important enough to record in such detail? Let's look at it and see if we can figure it out. Day one, look at day one, the personality of the witness. That's what you see on day one, the personality of the witness. Look at verse 19, 119. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now you remember in the introduction what we saw last week, the previous passage known as the prologue that John the Apostle introduced us to John the Baptist. He said John the Baptist had borne witness. He had given testimony to Jesus. And we saw that the author introduced John the Baptist in order to show us that this is not just information about Jesus. It's testimony. He's giving us testimony so that we can reach a verdict about Jesus. And so here he begins the narrative of Jesus' life with the testimony John bore to him. And this is the testimony of John. But you know, in any trial, the credibility of a witness is a major issue. And one crucial test of the credibility of a witness is this. Does he stand to gain anything personally by his testimony? And John the Baptist did not. That's the point the author is making here. John the Baptist got no personal gain from his testimony about Jesus. In fact, his testimony cost him. You see the testimony he gave at the end of verse 20, I am not the Christ. You see, the Jews were expecting the Christ. They were expecting the Messiah. And they sent this delegation to inquire of John. And from John's answer, it's obvious that the Jews had sent this delegation to John to determine if he were the Christ. There was a contingent, maybe a large contingent, that was at least open to the possibility 
of making John their Messiah. And they expected the Messiah to be what? Their true king. And John confessed to them, I am not the Christ. Sure, it would have been a lie if he'd said that he was. But look at what he turned down in order to tell the truth. He essentially rejected an opportunity to be a king. So then they asked him, you Elijah the prophet? Old Testament said Elijah would come before the last day and the great prophet like Moses would arise and John says no. So they ask him, who are you? And he quotes Isaiah chapter 40 there in verse 23. He says, I'm a voice, just a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And so then they ask him, if that's all you are, just a voice crying in the wilderness, you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, you're not anybody we're looking for, why then are you baptizing? Look at verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Of course, he's referring to Jesus, but do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I am baptizing because Jesus is here. But we'll come back to that in a moment. Right off the bat, John's credibility as the witness is established. He's not out for himself. He stands to gain nothing from his testimony. He's not telling you this for any ulterior motive. He's telling the truth. You see, the personality of the witness on day one. Now, on day two, you see the proclamation of the gospel. Now, having established the credibility of the witness, we now turn to the testimony he gives. And John proclaims four things about Jesus in this section. First, he proclaims the substitution or the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. The Lamb of God, the sacrifice who takes away sin, the sins of the world, not just the Jewish nation and race. You know, in the worship of the temple, you would bring your lamb and lay your hand on the lamb, and your sin would transfer from you to the lamb. And the lamb would then die the death you deserve in your place. Now, before the temple, even before Moses received the law, you remember that Abraham was tested. He was told to sacrifice his only begotten son, Isaac. And you remember Isaac asked his father, where is the lamb? 
And Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. And finally, when Abraham was about to kill his own son, the angel called out to stop. And it wasn't a lamb, you remember, but a ram caught in the thicket. And it says that Abraham sacrificed the ram in the stead of his son. Now we have contracted that old phrase, in the stead, down to the very common word, instead. In place of. Substituting for. And that's what John says about Jesus. He's our substitute. The lamb God would provide that Abraham prophesied. Who would die in our stead. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Behold. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He proclaims the substitution of Jesus. Next, John proclaims the superiority of Jesus. Look at verse 30. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John said Jesus is greater than I am. Why? Look at verse 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now let's put this all together. Remember John had said when the delegation came that he was sent to prepare the way of whom? The Lord. And if you look up the Old Testament scripture, he quotes Isaiah 40. You will see that Lord is all capital. That is the proper name of Jehovah God. I am sent to prepare the way for Jehovah God himself. Then in verse 25, when they asked John why he baptized, he said it was because who was there? Jesus. Now here in verse 31, he says he baptized so that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. He was preparing the way for God because God was coming. John was baptizing so that Jesus would be revealed. That is, so because Jesus was coming. In other words, Jesus is greater than John because Jesus is God himself. He's superior. The substitution of Jesus, the superiority of Jesus. Thirdly, he proclaims the spirit of Jesus. Look at verse 32. And John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now we'll spend a lot of time on the Holy Spirit as we go through John in the coming months. But for now, notice that Jesus is both endowed with the Holy Spirit in a special way and he gives the Holy Spirit. He baptizes with the Spirit. The Spirit came on him and remained on him. That was a mark of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. 
He has the Spirit, but He also gives the Spirit. Because it's His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. You see the substitution, the superiority and the Spirit of Jesus. And fourthly, John proclaims the sonship of Jesus. Look at verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. That's what he says. Now let's pull all this together. Who's the Lamb of God? The Son of God. It is God himself. The one who is absolutely superior, who is above all. He came in the flesh to bear our sin. And the Father testifies of the Son by sending the Spirit to anoint and remain with him. Now, when did John figure all this out? Look at 31 again. I myself did not know him. He didn't always know who Jesus was. But now, when did he find out? Look at verse 33. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he. God told John. Look for the Holy Spirit to descend on the true Messiah. When did that happen? When he baptized him. When did John hear that Jesus was the Son of God? At his baptism. When the Father's voice said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And when did John know that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? When Jesus came to be baptized. It was a baptism for repentance of sins. But Jesus had never sinned. So why was he baptized? Because he came to identify with sinners. And to bear their sin to the cross. As the Lamb of God in their stead. You see the personality of the witness. You see the proclamation of the gospel. Now on days 3 and 4. You see the proper response to the message. Look at verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, why does John, the author, tell us the same thing again that he'd already told us? Behold, the Lamb of God. Look at verse 37. Two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. He's telling us that the gospel message about who Jesus is demands a response. And we see two things involved in responding to the message. First response is coming to Jesus. These two disciples heard the message about Jesus and they began to follow Jesus. Physically, they began to follow Jesus. They got up and walked behind Jesus. Now look at verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. See these two disciples? They came to Jesus. They came because they heard John preach the message. You hear the gospel and you need to respond by coming to Jesus. 
Then look at the second part of their response. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. After he came to Jesus himself, Andrew went and brought his brother Peter to Jesus. That's why we're here. Clover ARP Church is here to be a place where Jesus is proclaimed so that people so that sinners can come to Jesus. And then having come to Jesus ourselves, we can then bring the people we care about to him. If I'm not mistaken, next year this church will celebrate its 125th year of ministry. If we continue to do that, Proclaim Jesus, come to Jesus, and bring people to Jesus. This church will celebrate its 250th year of ministry if Jesus waits that long. That's the proper response to the message. See the personality of the witness. You see the proclamation of the gospel. You see the proper response to the message. On day five, you see the promise of greater things. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. You see, same thing happens the next day. Jesus calls Philip. Philip comes to Jesus. He follows him. And then reading on, Philip finds this fellow Nathaniel. He comes to Jesus and he goes to bring somebody to Jesus. He goes and finds Nathaniel. He tells him, we found the Messiah. We found him. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one the Old Testament prophesied. And Nathaniel says, look at verse, 26, or verse uh, 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, Nathaniel, he was one of those people, if something entered his head, it came out his mouth. Ain't nobody good come out. Ain't no way the king's going to come out of Nazareth. But Philip tells him, come and see if anything good comes out of Nazareth. So it does. Then look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming and said toward him and said, Behold him, Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit. Isn't it embarrassing when you said something about somebody and then found out they'd heard it? Jesus heard what Nathanael said about him. And so Philip asked him, Well, how, how do you know about this? And or Nathanael asked him and in verse 48, at the end of it, Jesus answers him, Before Philip called you, when you were on the fig tree, I saw you. 
before Philip even called you. I already knew you. To prove that I already knew you, I'll tell you where you were standing before I could see you, before Philip even found you. And Nathaniel gets the message. Look at verse 49. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Look at Jesus' response to Nathaniel's confession. Look at verse 50. Jesus answered to him, Because I said to you, I saw you on the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? You're going to see something that make this little miracle of me telling you where you were before I saw you look like nothing. And it's this, verse 51. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You know what that's referring to? Jacob's ladder, isn't it? You remember Jacob, he went to sleep. In his dream, he saw a ladder going between heaven and earth and the angels going up and down on that ladder. And Jesus says, you will see the angels of God going up and down the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is Jacob's ladder. In still other words, Jesus is the way to heaven. And it's something Nathaniel would see. He would physically see it. When? When Jesus, like that ladder, hung between heaven and earth on the cross. He was making the way, the only way, into the presence of God. And Jesus promised Nathaniel he would physically see it. Something so much greater. See, the personality of the witness, the proclamation of the gospel, the proper response to the message, the promise of greater things. And then lastly, on day seven, you see the provision of the best at last. Chapter two, look at verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. So well-known story. You know it, Jesus at a wedding. They run out of wine. Jesus turns the water into wine. But you see, he says to his mother in, in verse 4, My time has not yet come. Then if you turn to the end at verse 11, it says that this manifested his glory. Jesus is saying, it's not time yet for me to show my glory. You know, it's fascinating in John chapter 12 and verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to what? Be glorified. He's talking about his death and resurrection. It's like Jesus is saying to his mother here at the wedding, it's not time for me to be glorified, to die and to rise again, but I will go ahead and do the miracle and provide the wine on the condition that it will point to my glory when the time comes. Now look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted, the water now become wine and did not know where it came from. 
The master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. So you see what Jesus says. Fill up six stone water jars. It says they're jars of Jewish ceremonies. Once they are fulfilled, once they're filled up, Verse 8, you see it says, go draw some out. You know the word draw out indicates drawing up water from a well. He's not saying take some water out of those six jars. He's saying now that you filled up the six jars, go draw some new water out of the well. Do you see the picture here? Once the Jewish ceremonies are fulfilled, Jesus will bring something new. Jesus will bring something so much better. He will bring the very best. And he saved the best for last. How does Jesus fulfill the Jewish ceremonies? Behold the Lamb of God. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. He fulfilled all of it. <coughs> he fulfilled it by being the true lamb whose blood could do what the blood of the ceremonial animal could never do, which was to make satisfaction and atonement for the sins of the world. And once he had fulfilled it, once he had fulfilled the Jewish law, the Jewish scripture, the Jewish ceremonies, and the Jewish sacrificial system, what did he do? He brought about a new creation. I know it's time to go already. But do you see now why John opens with a week in the life of Jesus, a chronological week? Do you remember the first words of John in the beginning? He lifted it straight from Genesis. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. Incidentally, that tells us how John read the Old Testament, doesn't it? Genesis was all about Jesus. But how does Genesis open? It opens with a week in which God created everything. The heavens and the earth. And John here is showing us that Jesus Christ came to make a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. So God made the first heaven and the first earth in a week. So how does John open the new creation brought by Jesus Christ with a week? How does John, how does Jesus make a new heavens and a new earth? By dying for the sin that destroyed the first heaven and the first earth. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And where does the new creation begin? Look, look at chapter 2 verse 1, look at it. On the third day. Isn't that interesting? The third day. Does that sound familiar to you? Why in this week does John skip a day? He, he's going every day and then he skips one day. Could it be that the prophecy of Jesus as Jacob's ladder, the cross, 
was on a Friday and the wedding at Cana was on a Sunday and perhaps the reason John didn't mention the day in between was because it was Saturday, the Sabbath, and they took a day of rest and there was nothing to report. And could it just be that the new wine at the end came on Sunday, the first day of the week, what John calls the third day? The day Jesus rose from the dead because the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the first fruits of a new creation? And could it be that this happened at the only wedding Scripture tells us Jesus attended because the only other wedding it says Jesus will attend will be his own in the new heavens and the new earth and it will be called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John is telling us here that because our Lamb has borne our sin and shed his blood for us and because he has risen, we, if and only if we come to him by faith and respond in the only proper way to this message, we may enjoy a new heaven and a new earth and be joined to our head and Savior and our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, for all if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost.